Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And this is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Mosiah 7 through 10. Okay. I want to begin with a little scenario. Picture in your mind the following. There's a family sitting together in their living room, scriptures open on their page, <coughs> or scriptures open on their laps, and they're reading through a chapter of the Book of Mormon. As they're going, Dad is dutifully reading some verses out loud, Mom is looking across the room and noticing a troubled look on her daughter's face, and she picks up on that expression and she wonders how she could possibly help this daughter who she knows is struggling with certain things. One of the sons is uh, curled up in a ball covered with a blanket with his scriptures propped up on his knees and his eyes are slowly closing, and uh, he's clearly not engaged in what's going on. And other family members are sitting there with their, their eyes are open, their scriptures are in front of them, dad's reading, and their eyes may actually be covering the page, but they have no idea what's being read. Their mind is completely somewhere else. Now, that's the scenario. How, uh, how reasonable is that? Or how much of a fairy tale is that? Uh, I suppose we've talked about this before. I've mentioned this before. This phenomenon that occurs when we sometimes get into our scripture study, we treat it as if it's something we have to do in order to be a, a, a good member of the church. We need to do our daily personal and family scripture study. So, check, we did it. So, we come into this experience, we read our scriptures, and then we go out of this experience and then go back into real life, right? There's a problem with that. It's treating, it's treating this experience as if it's not part of real life, as if it's just a duty that we have to fulfill in order to feel better about our, our discipleship or our membership in the church. The reality is that these scriptures are the words of God. So if we can reverse this mentality and instead of seeing our scripture study or our church attendance or our prayers as checklist items, but rather these connecting points with heaven, these opportunities to come unto Christ and to hear his voice speaking to us, it will change what happens in those family settings. It will change what happens in those personal settings or in those public settings in church. Uh, <clears throat> a couple years, actually quite a few years ago now, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland in General Conference said something like this, why do, why do we go to church? Is it to learn a few new gospel facts or to renew some old acquaintances? He says that, that's important and that will happen, but the reason that people really go to church is 
They want their faith fortified. They want their testimony strengthened. They want their hope renewed. They want, they want something to give them motivation and encouragement and inspiration to keep moving forward in faith, trusting in God. And in our uncertain times and in our troubled world, now more than ever before, we need help from the Lord. So, what would happen if instead of treating the scripture study time as, ugh, I have to serve a sentence, so to speak, almost like we're, we're, we're putting in jail time so that we can then get back to life, what if we brought all of our problems, all of our concerns, all of our sins and temptations or addictions into these experiences and as you find that your mind wanders and zones out and you recognize that that's what's happening, pay attention to what it zoned out to and then come back into the scripture experience with that on the, the front of our mind and say, Heavenly Father, I need help with this or take a time out in your family discussion and instead of just dutifully reading scripture, which is a good thing, but to take it to the next level, we could say, now, what are our concerns collectively that we need help with, that we need answers for, that we need heaven's guidance and light on? Let's take those with us as we now go in and study these chapters today and look for principles, look for the voice of God speaking to us here, now, for our time and our setting as we liken all scriptures unto us. Uh, that is a beautiful opportunity for families and individuals to, to literally hear the voice of the Lord speaking to them through the words of these prophets. Now, with that foundation, I, we would just encourage you to pause for a moment, pause the video, and reflect on what are the struggles that I'm facing, the questions that I have, the wrestles that I, that I deal with with uh, spiritual or physical or financial or emotional areas of my life and keep a prayer in your heart that the Lord will guide you and help you make sense of those things and uh, then be open to those, those thoughts and feelings that will come, probably won't be a heavenly choir singing to you or an angelic visitation, it'll probably come in simple ways in your mind as you think of connections or come up with some solutions, uh, and then you, you move forward in faith, acting on those. Now, let's jump in. Chapter 7. In this chapter, you'll notice we, we had King Benjamin gave his speech uh, three years ago, so it's now been three years that King Mosiah, his son, so Mosiah is Benjamin's father and Mosiah is Benjamin's son, the two same names. So now Mosiah, his son, after three years um, of being uh, the king, in chapter 7, verse 1, he tells us that uh, after he'd had continual peace for three years, so it's now been six years since King Benjamin's speech, uh, he he says, wow, we have a whole group of people who left the land of Zarahemla, a large group of people. Uh, it's been about roughly 80 years ago, and so they on, on the map, they've left here in Zarahemla, Zenith led this large group, and they went 
south. They went up to the land of Nephi. So, Mosiah number two is concerned about them. We haven't heard from them for 80 years, and this, this huge group of people and many of our family members and friends from the past, that they're gone. We just need to go and see how they're doing. So, he sends 16 strong men, and uh, Ammon is their leader. So, you have Ammon with 15 strong men to help him. Now, look at the, the beautiful overlay here in a plan of salvation perspective, that you have the land of Zarahemla up north that's friendly to the Nephites. This group left there, went down to the land of Nephi on our map, or up, as far as the geography is concerned. They went up to the land of Nephi in a place that isn't very friendly to Nephites, and they are in bondage. So, this nice overlay, this microcosm for the plan of salvation, God sends, the heavenly king sends a very strong person, and, and I get it, later on he's going to say, I don't feel uh, worthy to, to baptize Limhi's group, so the analogy breaks down very quickly, but at this level, notice he sends Ammon and 15 strong men to leave the safety of Zarahemla, go to Nephi, and get these people out of bondage to bring them back home to where they're safe in Zarahemla. There's a nice little symbolism there. I, I don't know that, uh, that Mormon or Mosiah intended to purposefully have, have it be Ammon plus 15 strong men, but boy, in the latter days as we liken all scriptures unto us, we can find little nuggets of, of symbolic uh, tie-ins to what we're experiencing, and the Savior himself, in, in this symbolic sense, plus the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, fifteen very, very strong men, spiritually speaking, uh, are on a mission. They're on a mission in a world that is fallen, that is not very friendly to, uh, to heavenly beings, so to speak, all of us who have come down as children of our heavenly parents. And they're here to help us, on a, they're on a mercy mission, to help us find peace and safety and deliverance from the bondage that each of us uh, experience in, in a variety of ways in life. So, they wander, they get lost for 40 days in the, in the wilderness until they finally are able to uh, locate the city of Nephi and Shilom, where this little band of Nephites resides, and they're in, they're in slavery, Limhi's people. So, you'll notice we had up here in the north, you had Mosiah, Benjamin, and Mosiah. Down south in the land of Nephi, so this is in the land of Zarahemla, and down in the land of Nephi, we have Zenith, then his son Noah, that we'll cover next week, and Limhi, the week after that in Come Follow Me, and these three kings are down in the land of Nephi. They're all, they're all Nephites, but we've got to get these people out of bondage, because it's now been 80 years. So, this is where we're doing some time warp in the Book of Mosiah, but just keep your eye on the dates, and it helps us uh, keep the story straight. 
So they arrive here. Limhi's people uh, think that they're the priests of King Noah, and so they arrest Ammon and four other guys that he takes with him to go in. And then they have this, this fun little uh, sequence that you're going to read about in chapter 7. The story of the people of Limhi is significant in so many ways. In some ways, their story echoes the Exodus story that we have in the Bible, where God saves his people from Egyptian bondage and brings them out into the wilderness, makes covenants with them, and then leads them into the promised land. And so you might take that as an opportunity to study and compare and contrast how are the people of Limhi similar and different to the people in the time of uh, the ancient Israelites in Egypt. And of course, the major difference there is, uh, I'll just give you a few hints, the people of Limhi got themselves into bondage because they weren't keeping the commandments. The ancient Israelites were actually just living in Egypt because God had brought them there to save them from a famine, and then eventually the Egyptians just took them over. But there's something significant here that we should point out. I have a phrase written up here on the board. It's the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you look back at verse 19, listen to how Limhi teaches his people. He says, lift up your heads and rejoice and put your trust in God, in that God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, listen how he goes on. He's actually trying to drive home to the people, you can trust God to deliver you. Why? Well, let's remember, what did we learn in scriptures? This is the same God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and caused that they should walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and fed them with manna that they may not perish in the wilderness and many more things he did do for them. Limhi wants to remind the people that they are in covenant with a God who himself has covenanted to deliver them. And that actually is tied into the Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about the covenant path before. There's two major covenants. The Abrahamic covenant where God obligates himself to his people to provide them posterity, property, priesthood, and prosperity. And in return, the Mosaic covenant explains our obligations to God, which is to keep the commandments. The Abrahamic covenant is being invoked by this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, what is the people's duty? If they keep the commandments, they shall prosper the land. And it turns out, under King Noah, the people had not kept the commandments. That is why Abinadi was sent to the people as a Moses figure to teach them the Ten Commandments, the things that they should be living so they could prosper in the land. That's the Mosaic covenant. And now, Limhi is basically saying, you guys can trust God, and if you guys keep the commandments, God will deliver you. And we see this beautiful deliverance story that happens here in the book of Mosiah. In fact, it's another similar story is repeated later on that we'll talk about with the people of Alma who also go into bondage. And eventually, the same thing. God invokes the Abrahamic covenant. He's the God you can trust. He's a God who is covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to provide blessings to their children and posterity, which are the people we find in the Book of Mormon. And all of us, either by blood or by adoption, are the children of Abraham. And so we have full access to all that God has offered. He simply asks us to keep the commandments. And every week at sacrament, when you partake of the sacrament, you're making the promise to do these very things. And as you do, 
the promise back from God is you will, you will receive the Spirit to be with you, which is a form of prospering. Thank you, Taylor. Uh, turn over to chapter 7, verse 31 now, as we finish off this chapter. So, in this part, Limhi is still telling uh, Ammon and the, the men who he's brought with him about Abinadi and some of the things that he taught the people. Look at verse 31, and again he saith, if my people shall sow filthiness, they shall reap the east wind, which bringeth immediate destruction. There's a pattern throughout the Bible talking about east wind. Over in Jerusalem it's pretty obvious because the way that the geography is laid out, you have Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, here's Jerusalem here, this is west, this is east. As the winds prevailingly come from the west, they bring with them the moisture, they bring with them life, and they, they keep this a very green and fruitful land. You drop over to the other side of the ridge and all of this is very, very desolate. It's dry, it's brown, it's, it's not good. So in the, in the biblical context, an east wind always brings with it destruction and famine and bad stuff. And what brings that on? He says, if you sow filthiness, then you're going to reap the east wind. One of the main messages of the Book of Mormon that uh, Elder or that President uh, Henry B. Eyring has talked about on a couple of occasions is the law of the harvest, that you're going to plant certain things and you're going to harvest whatever it is that you plant. You cannot plant wickedness and filthiness and expect to live in such a way that God gives you the rewards of righteous living and covenant keeping. It just doesn't work that way. In the Book of Mormon context, uh, for those of you who want to dig a little deeper, Kerry Hull, my, my colleague at BYU in Ancient Scripture, he's done a lot of research on the east wind in an American context on this side of the planet, and it's beautiful. You could look up a, a wonderful article that he's written on that topic, uh, east wind in the, in the Americas. Same thing. It brings destruction. It's, it's symbolic of death. Now look at the opposite, verse 33, if you will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, Taylor's talked about this on other occasions as well, the idea, and other, many people have talked about this, President Uchtdorf, the idea of when you turn, that is the ultimate sense of, of repentance, is to turn towards God. So if we turn to the Lord, that's repenting with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind. And if you do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. That is a beautiful promise from the Book of Mormon for our day as well, that he gives us some things there, some, some actions we have to employ in order to really say to him, I want you to be my God and I want to be thy people. I want to connect with, with thee and he will deliver us out of bondage. Then he shifts into chapter 8 where 
uh, Ammon is teaching them uh, the the things that have happened in the 80 years since his since these people have been gone, and now it's Limhi's turn to teach Ammon and the others about what's happened here during those 80 years, and he he says, look, we were we've been brought into bondage and we tried to get out. We sent 43 men to try to find Zarahemla. 43 men left uh, the cities of Nephi and Shilom down here in the land of Nephi, and they must have gone either to the east or to the west, and they missed Zarahemla, the center of the land, and they went up past Bountiful, and they made it up into the land northward, up in land desolation, and they found this huge destroyed civilization. Verse 8, they found this land covered with bones of men and of beasts, covered with the ruins of building of every kind. It's only been 80 years since they left, and they see this entire destructive uh, area of the Jaredites up in the north, and they assume that all the Nephites are now dead. They, they don't realize that they've totally missed Zarahemla and found a, a different land because it was their grandparents who had come to the land of Nephi, and they bring back 24 plates, they bring back breastplates and swords and hilts and blades cankered with rust, and they now think, okay, we're stuck. There's no way out because there are no Nephites who can come and deliver us. We're on our own. We're just going to be slaves for the rest of our lives, basically. And uh, so they have these 24 plates, and Limhi says, can you read these, Ammon? And Ammon says, no, I, I can't read that language, uh, but I do know somebody who can. Mosiah happens to be a seer. He talks about, in verse uh, 13, interpreters, that he has the ability to see things, and he's going to describe uh, what a seer is. So, as you read verse 13 through 20, pay close attention to the descriptions that they give here of what a seer is, what a seer does, and the value of having a seer with you. Now, in our day, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, what a blessing it is to have 15 prophets seers and revelators. In here, in verse 16, it says, a seer is a revelator and a prophet also, and a gift which is greater can no man have. Because verse 17, they, seers know of things which are past and things which are to come, and by them shall all things be revealed. That, that gives me great comfort in a world that is in, in upheaval and in, with so much uncertainty to know Surely the Lord God will do nothing except he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets, and in this case, prophets, seers, and revelators. They know things, and they'll tell us what we need to, to be aware of moving forward. Now, pay attention as we shift into chapter 9, because what happens in chapter 9, this was chapters 7 and 8, Ammon dealing with Limhi. And by the way, that Ammon, just to make sure we're on the same page, is a, is a different Ammon than the one who's going to cut off people's arms in Alma 17. Uh, that's, that's the son of Mosiah, 
So Mosiah has a son, well, he has four sons, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni. That's a different Ammon than the one that came down here. So just to keep that straight in your mind. So these were chapters seven and eight. Now we're going to shift into a flashback going back 80 years, and we're going to pick up nine and ten, and then Noah's story is going to be 11 through 19. So now you can, these are all chapters in Mosiah, the book of Mosiah. So we've got seven and eight, then we do a flashback to here, and then we're going to move forward and tell his story um, in next week's lesson, and then we'll tell Limhi and Alma's stories and in the following week. So that's 20 through 22, we're going to pick up Limhi's deliverance story. So that's kind of a quick uh, 30,000 foot overview of the story. Now, we do our flashback and here's Limhi, or sorry, here's Zenith. So as you read this story, notice that Zenith was sent on a mission originally in chapter 9 <clears throat> to destroy the Lamanites, but he saw that which was good among them and he didn't want to destroy them and there's this, this scuffle and many people die on this spy party and he comes back home in Zarahemla and he tells King Mosiah the first, I, I want to leave Zarahemla and I want to go back home where we came from in Nephi because I want to be, I, I want to live there. I enjoyed that place way better than I do Zarahemla. So look at chapter 9 verse 3. As, uh, as Zenith goes and takes these people, a, a huge group of people with him that want to return to the land of Nephi to live, he says, and yet I, being overzealous to inherit the land of our fathers, collected as many as were desirous to go up to possess the land and started again on our journey. They were smitten with sore afflictions, for we were slow to remember the Lord our God. The Book of Mormon just keeps dropping these, these hints along the way that when we think we can go it alone, when we get overzealous and try to do our own thing, then we don't prosper like we could. <clears throat> when, we, when we try to say, I, I don't need God to do what I'm, I'm going to do here, that's a problem. And that problem exists not just in, in movements of the people like this, but in, in our world today. It's like this experience you have reading scriptures, studying the scriptures, studying the gospel with your family that we talked about at the beginning. If you think you can do that alone without heaven's help, then you're not going to prosper. You're going to struggle. You're going to wrestle with this uh, versus saying, help, we're, we're not slow to remember our God teach us. So they, they finally get down there, they talk to, the, to King Laman and say, hey, would you allow us to live among you? And King Laman says, oh yes, I will give you the land of Nephi and Shilom to the north. And he tells all of his people to leave. That should have caused some serious red flags for Zenith and his people, but they didn't pick up on that. Sure enough, 12 years later, after they've moved in, they've built up the houses, they've repaired all of the cities, 12 years later the king of the Lamanites says, okay, we're ready, let's go enslave them. So they come to war. Verse 16 says, and it came to pass that I did arm them 
with bows and with arrows, with swords and with scimitars and with clubs and with slings and with all manner of weapons. Uh, just a really, really quick tangent, a quick side note. And by the way, it's okay to take tangents because if you don't, you're going to just end up talking in circles. Now, that's just a little geometry joke for some of you out there. Uh, the Book of Mormon plates written in Reformed Egyptian, there was no punctuation on the plates. There was no punctuation in the original manuscript. There was no punctuation on the original printer's manuscript. It was delivered to E.B. Grandin's print shop, and John Gilbert, the typesetter, the guy who's putting each individual letter into place to print the book, he took a pencil and in the printer's manuscript he went through and added all of the punctuation marks that we currently have in our Book of Mormon. And by the way, he was uh, semicolon happy. He, he really liked that, as you'll notice. So I just throw that out there because you're going to run into things like this verse over and over again in the Book of Mormon where they don't have things like a comma to separate items in a list. So when you see long lists, you're going to see those lists separated with words or characters. And uh, that is not great English, but it's beautiful Egyptian and Semitic in, in, in its uh, origin. So just as a side note, don't make judgment calls on doctrine or interpretation based on punctuation in the book because it, it's not prophetic. It, it wasn't put there by the prophet Joseph or by Oliver Cowdery. The punctuation marks were put there by the typesetter. That's, that's just a side note. Now, back to our topic. They've prepared themselves with, 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 with all these things. Now they come. Look at the contrast. Um, verse 17, so he prepared his people with all these physical things, but here's the real reason they're going to win. Yea, in the strength of the Lord did we go forth to battle against the Lamanites. For I and my people did cry mightily to the Lord that he would deliver us out of the hands of our enemies, for we are awakened to a remembrance of the deliverance of our fathers. Now, in our world today, I think it would be really instructive for each of us to spend time remembering the captivity of our fathers through different generations of time, as the title page of the Book of Mormon would suggest, that we don't just live our life right now, but we, we keep learning lessons from the past. They remembered how God had delivered their fathers, and so they it strengthens their faith to call upon God in their current struggles, and boy, those were major struggles that they're facing, and God did hear our cries and did answer our prayers, and we did go forth in his might, and we did go forth against the Lamanites, and in one day and a night we did slay 3,043. So God allows them to do all of these things. We just slew 3,043 Lamanites. And in contrast, he tells you that only 279 of his brethren were killed. That kind of gives you an idea of the scope and scale of size of the group that he brought with him, that we're going to be breaking off 450 souls uh, for Alma's group. We're going to have a big group with Limhi that that's going to be uh, delivered, but in the process we lost 279 people here in this first battle, this first instance. So this is, this is a sizable population that we're talking about. That's about an 11 to 1 ratio. 
I would say we won that war handily as Nephites. Now, that's looking at black words on a white page. That's looking at numbers. That's doing statistics and, and simple math. But brothers and sisters, the thing that uh, if we pause for a minute, these are real people. There are 3,043 Lamanite families that night who aren't going to have that individual return. There are 279 families in the land or in the cities of Nephi and Shalom who that night, they're not going to see that as a victory. They're not going to see, oh yeah, we won. There is some excitement that, okay, we're not slaves, we haven't been brought into bondage, but I think those emotions are probably going to be overpowered by the fact that that dad's not coming home tonight and he'll never come home again in this life, or you've lost your son or a brother or a spouse, a husband, and uh, all the questions that then come up of now what in the world am I going to do? Brothers and sisters, this is, this is part of life. For 279 Nephite families, they were put in a place where they can no longer rely completely on themselves. They have to turn more than ever before heavenward and say, help me, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know how I'm going to how I'm going to make this work moving forward. But if we put our trust in God and, and sow seeds of righteousness and covenant keeping and our best efforts to be good and to turn to the Lord, he will deliver and, and good things will happen. Now, turn the page over. Chapter 10 begins and uh, we think, okay, well, we won. We, we took care of the, the problem, but as is the case in every chapter in the Book of Mormon where there's war involved, just because you win one war doesn't mean you can go on vacation and say, okay, we're, we're done, we never have to fight again. The Nephites realize that the minute one war ends, another battle's going to be coming. And one thing for you to consider, either as an individual or as a family, is this. Sometimes we get so good at uh, focusing on the past of what worked in the past that we don't turn to heaven to figure out how to make sense of those past successes to then move forward into the future. I heard a beautiful insight from, from my dean up at BYU, Brother Dan Judd, a good friend. He shared this concept that in matters of physical war, sometimes we get really good at training new soldiers and new officers on how to win yesterday's wars, but we don't do a great job of teaching them how to win tomorrow's battles. The world's changing. Now, there are definitely things that can be applied, but in your family and in your personal life, I think the Book of Mormon would be teaching us this principle of you can't just relax and keep doing all of the exact same things that we've always been doing. We have to grow line upon line, precept upon precept, to be able to face those battles that are coming at us and those conflicts that we're going to have to overcome in the future. And you can't do that alone, and you can't do that based on your, your knowledge of the past uh, experiences and other people's past experiences alone. That's where we need a prophet. We need seers. We need to be connected with heaven so personal revelation can guide and direct us. 
as we move forward in faith. In fact, one of my favorite concepts about living by the Spirit or teaching by the Spirit is a concept that Elder Neal A. Maxwell alluded to when he was the Commissioner of Education many, many decades ago. He said something like this, teaching by the Spirit, or we could add living by the Spirit, is to give the Lord the lead of an already informed mind. So we learn the lessons from the past, we inform our mind and our heart, we, we become aware of all these situations, but then we give the Lord the lead and say, okay, now help me make sense of this moving forward because I, I don't know what I'm doing. And there are good things that happen whenever we, we put our trust in him at that level. So we know the Lamanites are going to come again. Chapter 10, verse 6, King Laman died and his son began to reign in his stead. So we know they're going to be coming. His son's going to bring vengeance, and so they do again, verse 8. And by the way, verse 8, notice another long list separated with and with, and with, and with, instead of just commas like we would do in English. Look at verse 11. Now the Lamanites knew nothing concerning the Lord, nor the strength of the Lord, therefore they depended upon their own strength. Yet they were a strong people as to the strength of men. So Zenith is pausing his narrative here to, instead of telling more of the story, he says, okay, now let me explain something about the, the Lamanites and how they, how they live their life and how they see us and how they see themselves. Verse 12, they were a wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this. So you could highlight there the tradition of their fathers. So what he's, what he's going to give us here is the tradition of the Lamanites. This is what they have passed on to their children for generations. This is what they believe. This, these are their traditions. This is their narrative, their story. Now, we need to make it very clear here. Um, this is coming, at, coming to us from the words of Zenith. And by the way, another little tangent here, this won't get you into heaven, but it's, it's interesting to be able to watch these, these little uh, shifts take place in the Book of Mormon when Mormon, the chief abridger here, goes from third person voice to first person, when he does a copy-paste job, when he's allowing somebody to speak directly to you through his own pen. He, he's not, he doesn't seem to be putting a lot of himself in here, he's just copying Zenith's words over word for word, so you'll notice this is all written in first person, coming to us from Mormon. And you'll notice he shifts from first person when Zenith dies at the end of chapter 10 to third person when Noah takes over. He's not going to let Noah speak directly to us, he's going to give us the interpretation in third person. When, when it's uh, Noah's turn. And so you just watch uh, who Mormon allows to have a first-person voice with you. It's kind of fascinating in your study as you move forward. So now, back to our tradition, coming at us from the pen or the stylus of Zenith, who is under attack for the second time, and he says, I just need you to understand what we're fighting against. <clears throat> So a few lines down in verse 12, the Lamanites believed that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their fathers, 
and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren, that they were also wronged while crossing the sea. Notice, there's the word that starts this all off. The Lamanite tradition is we were wronged in Jerusalem. We were driven out of Jerusalem because of the iniquity of our fathers. We were wronged in the wilderness. We were wronged while crossing the, the sea. Now, we have the Nephite record in front of us. We know the stories that Nephi tells about what happened in the wilderness and on the sea, but it doesn't take a genius in this context to figure out how Laman and Lemuel might have told those stories differently. You can stop and think about the wilderness experience. They could easily tell their children, you know what, we almost died in the wilderness because Nephi broke his bow. He, he did something stupid and broke his bow. He almost killed us. Uh, they could say, Nephi shocked us. Nephi forced us to do things. Nephi uh, did this. Lehi did that. They can repurpose the reality in whatever way they want to make themselves look like the good guy in any of these stories, and that's what gets passed on through generations. Now, notice, it doesn't end there. Verse 13, again, they were wronged while in the land of their first inheritance. Look at verse 14, and his brethren were wroth with him. There's a pattern here. If you allow yourself to feel wronged or offended long enough, it will always tend to lead you to a feeling of wrath. You, they were wroth with him because they understood not the dealings of the Lord. They were also wroth with him upon the waters because they hardened their hearts against the Lord. Verse 15, again, they were wroth with him after they had arrived in the promised land because they said that he had taken the ruling of the people out of their hands and they sought to kill him. For Laman and Lemuel, the thing that keeps coming up over and over again is they want to be in charge of the ruling of the people. They're focused on who gets the, the, the glory, the throne, the, the power over the people, and it, it galls them. It makes them so angry that Nephi took the ruling of the people out of their hands, so they sought to kill him. What adds more? Verse 16, again, they were wroth with him because he departed into the wilderness as the Lord had commanded him, and he took the records which were engraven on the plates of brass, for they said that he robbed them. Hmm. That's an interesting narrative. Nephi robbed us of that which rightly belonged to us, those brass plates. That's what Laman and Lemuel have been teaching their children. Those plates were ours. There's no mention of how the plates were actually attained in the first place, but Laman and Lemuel aren't going to tell that part of the story because in his, in Laman's mind, he is the firstborn son. He, he should get a double portion of everything that his father owns, and in his mind, his father owns the brass plates, not Nephi. And when Nephi departs and takes the brass plates with him, away goes this, this connecting point back to the old world, this incredible status symbol of whoever has these brass plates that were obtained from, from Laban, uh, a ruler among the Jews, a ruler of 50, uh, 
whoever has those, it's a sign of power, it's a sign of, of ruling capacity. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure if Laman uh, was really concerned about losing the plates because now he didn't know what scriptures he was going to be able to use to read to his family in their sacrifice meetings, because they don't have sacrament meetings back then at sacrifice meetings, or what he's going to read to his family on uh, family home evening. I don't know that he cares much about what's in the scriptures as much as the status symbol of what the brass plates represent. And now Nephi has stolen them from the, uh, from the Lamanites, and it makes them very, very angry. Now watch the progression, or in this case, watch the digression. If you allow yourself to feel angry long enough because of past wrongs, it will lead you to another, another element. Look at verse 17. Thus they have taught their children that they should hate them. So this is speaking, let me, let me translate, thus the Lamanites have taught their children that they should hate the Nephites, and that they should murder them, and that they should rob and plunder them, and do all that they could to destroy them, therefore they have an eternal hatred towards the children of Nephi. Now let me pause here before I finish this, and uh, Taylor, what is the significance of some of these words here? So I want to give you an opportunity to look closely at some verses in Mosiah chapter 10. The English words that are used there are very interesting, particularly in verses 12 through 16. I want you to look for words that begin with the letters in English, W-R, and it's interesting in English, Words that begin in WR have at their core meaning something that's being twisted. And I've written a number of words up here, not that these actually show up in those verses, but there's, I want you to look at these words in English. For example, the word wrong, that means something's been twisted out of place. Wrath, you've been twisted into anger. A wreath, right, we hang them up at Christmas time, we twist them into shape. A wraith, uh, if you happen to be a Lord of the Rings fan, you have the ring race. These guys have been twisted out of their normalcy and they become evil. A wrist is something that twists. In fact, you also have the word write because you have to twist your wrist as you're writing. To wrangle, you might think of like a cowboy wrangling with the animals. A wreck, something gets twisted and mangled. A wretch or rot or wrinkle. Um, I need to add another word in here. Uh, wrath, okay, where somebody gets all bent out of shape with anger to writhe or wrinkle. So I want you to think about how the WR words are used in verses 12 to 16 and think about the twisting that's going on and what do we learn about what God is teaching us about what happens when people don't listen to him and what they're going to receive when they don't keep the commandments. What I want you to particularly look at is the stories that were being told in Book of Mormon times. And we can apply it to ourselves. I'll just give one example. We're talking about why the Lamanites took over the Nephites, and Limhi is explaining to his people that their ancestors, Laman and Lemuel, were wroth. They were twisted out of shape into anger against Nephi and against Lehi, and it caused this division. And that division, the stories that they told, ended up creating all this conflict. And so we might ask ourselves, what stories do we tell ourselves about ourselves, about others? 
And are we allowing God's love to put us back into place instead of being twisted out of place because of our anger or our misunderstanding? And when we let God's love wash through us, we can be straightened out on the straight and narrow. That's uh, it's beautiful insight, Taylor. Uh, there is power in words. Now back to our little diagram here, our digression of where we've watched the Lamanites feel offended, get angry, and have it lead to hatred. We need to make something very clear. There are two kinds of wrongs. There are real wrongs, and there are perceived wrongs. To the person who feels offended or the person who feels wronged, it's really hard in that moment to distinguish between what is real and what is perceived because to them, everything feels real. That is their reality. I was wronged. Even if they don't understand all of your intention, everything that you meant, everything that was going on, they feel wronged. So now they've passed this on. Here's the question for us to wrestle with. Who was, based on the, the written record of Nephi, who was really wronged in the wilderness? Who was really wronged on the boat while crossing the sea? Who was really wronged in the New World and was, was, had multiple attempts on his life being taken? The person who really was wronged in those situations did not get angry consistently. Now, he, Nephi tells us in 2 Nephi 4 that he, he's frustrated with how angry and upset he gets at his enemies, and we know who his enemies have been, and so we can assume that he isn't perfect at this, but he has sought very diligently to teach his children to love the Lamanites, to do good to them, to, to bless them, lift them up, try to reclaim them back to the gospel, uh, to the straight and narrow path. So, he made a conscious choice to, instead of getting angry, to seek to forgive. So, even though the Book of Mormon doesn't put focus in this chapter with Zenith on the high road, it's worth time sometimes as a family to pause and talk about, or as an individual to pause and ponder or journal about what are the lessons that we learn from the scripture page sometimes that aren't there. So we've talked about the black words on the page, the printed words, but there are a lot of white words on the page. And you have to kind of slow down, take more time, read between the lines and say, hmm. So this is a decision point. We see what the Lamanites chose to do. What happens if we choose the opposite? What happens? Let's follow that for a minute. So Nephi, who was really wronged, chose to forgive, and there are multiple cases where it says, I frankly forgave them. And when you forgive and you keep forgiving long enough, it leads to love. And if you want the ultimate love, charity, the, the pure love of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, the key here is there was one person who was really wronged completely wronged in infinite proportions. That was Christ. He didn't get angry, he chooses to forgive, and he chooses to love with 
with perfect love. His infinite suffering, the real wrongs he endured for us, didn't lead him to hate us and to seek vengeance. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his Son into the world to save it. And so Jesus takes all of these real wrongs, endures them, suffers them, and in response says, I want to forgive you because I love you with an eternal love. Now, what you see in this scripture story is a window into something much more profound than just the tradition of the Lamanites. I don't think they're making this up for their, of their own accord. I think they're hearkening to a voice from below, and that voice is still shouting at us today, trying to get us to, to believe the same things and to follow the same path. What you see in the Book of Mormon is this extreme contrast between ultimate good and ultimate evil. Here you have Christ's path diagrammed for you, and here you have Lucifer's path diagrammed for you. If you want to be more like the devil, you know the pattern, here's how to do it. Just go around and whether it was real wrongs or perceived wrongs, it doesn't matter, just feel offended as much as you possibly can and get more and more and more angry at people, don't let it go, don't let them forget all the bad things they've done, hold on to it and get more angry by the minute and it will lead you to an eternal hatred towards people, a distrust, a, a, a frustration. Uh, you can imagine that the, the corridors of hell are not filled with, with spirits down there who are saying, you know, we were really dumb up in the pre-mortal world, we messed up, we should have just trusted our Heavenly Father, we should have had faith in Christ and followed him. I, I could be wrong, I have, I have no authority for these things, but I, I just don't think those conversations are happening down in the boardrooms of hell today. I think what you have going on is a whole group of people who feel very wronged, who feel very angry and upset, and, and who are filled with an eternal hatred and are doing everything they can to destroy God's plan to the best of their ability because of that hatred and because of those feelings of wrong. Now, that's a real downer, so let's not focus there, let's not stay there, let's go to the good side. You have Christ's pattern that you can be wronged in very, very real ways, but you can forgive through his power because he will grant us that capacity, that ability to forgive and move on, which will then replace those feelings of frustration and those feelings of deep offense and abuse and hurt with feelings of, of his love for us. It's not our job to make sure that justice is served on somebody in the eternal uh, realm. We drop that at the Lord's feet and we let him deal with this, the, the person who wronged us and we allow him to replace those feelings of hurt with feelings of love and forgiveness. Now, here's the, uh, here's the sad irony to this story in Mosiah chapter 10. If you look at the dates for this chapter, we're roughly 178 BC, give or take. We're talking about wrongs that occurred 422 years in the past, 420 years ago. We're out in the wilderness, so to speak. 
just to give you a frame of reference, 422 years ago, your ancestors wronged my ancestors, therefore I'm going to have this eternal hatred for you. There comes a time, brothers and sisters, when we need to let things go, when we need to forgive. As humanity, we need to come together. In our context today, from today's uh, year, just to give you a frame of reference, if you take the year 2020 and subtract 422, you end up with 1598. So picture one of your ancestors doing something to one of my ancestors in the year 1598 and me coming to you saying, I have an eternal hatred for you because of what your ancestors did back in 1598, I can imagine that your response would be, I am so sorry that that happened, but I didn't do that to you. Can we figure out how to, how to get along today? Because our ancestors didn't figure out how to get along, apparently, um, as we move forward in time. Brothers and sisters, there's no, there's no virtue in being angry and, and hating people because of things in the past. Now, a quick, uh, a quick side note here. This is not an invitation to keep putting yourself or other people in harm's way. If there's an abusive situation, if there's real hurt or real abuse taking place, we do everything we can to stop that and prevent that. That is, that is not in question here. It's just that once we've, we've got things into a safe position, the Lord's invitation to us is to walk the high road and to find a way through his power, his merits, and his mercy and his grace alone to find ways to forgive and to let go of the pain so that the, the bitterness and the hurt and the hate can be replaced with, with loving kindness. We thank you for spending time with us today, and we want to remind you this is brought to you by Book of Mormon Central. Our Scripture Plus app has lots of valuable supplemental resources that we hope will help you better engage with the Scriptures and find meaning, purpose, and truth that God has preserved for us in these latter days. Know that you're loved.